Hello, and welcome to the newest episode of Cake Bites. I'm stoked to have the creator of Echo the Dolphin in this month's episode. Um, I did this interview a little while ago, and I've just been holding on to it. I had so much fun talking with Ed, and I'm just really excited to share it with y'all. Just a reminder that I am now a part of the Little Fellow Media Network, sponsored by Buzzsprout, so make sure you're sticking around after the interviews to hear a word from some other podcasts that may pique your interest, um, and make sure you are following me and uh, the show on social media. So yeah, let's get started. Okay, perfect, perfect. So um, my favorite part is always the beginning because I love learning about how um, people who create games got into playing games. So so how did you get into gaming? Well, yeah, I played games um, <laughs> back, you know, way back when Ronald Reagan was president and arcades were around. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I played games like, Missile Command, which I loved, and mm-hmm. uh, Defender, uh, Centipede, games like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I got really curious about, you know, how games work and the, the whole concept of um, software running on a computer and it being a game. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I wanted to figure out how to do that. And um, I got my first computer. It was a... a a ZX81, Sinclair ZX81, which was a, a $200, uh, at the time it was a kit, um, and a friend of mine soldered it for me. I wasn't interested in that part of it, and um, <laughs> we got it working, and um, you know, I tried to make like a little man walk across the screen, mm-hmm. and I, I managed to do it by, um, you know, with ASCII characters and, you know, one, one phase of animation with the leg going forward and the next phase of animation with the leg going behind. And, and then I ran the program and it ran so slow. It didn't look like uh, (laughs) uh, walking at all. It looked like swimming or just, it was terrible. And uh, the, the animation was so slow. And plus the, the Sinclair ZX81 computer, every time it would, execute a command it would blank the screen because it wasn't fast enough to update the screen while it was uh, executing the command so i couldn't make a little man walk across the screen so i researched that in a library and found out that there was um there was two ways to program a computer you could program it with using the basic programming language that um, the computers had back then built in, mm-hmm. or you could program it in machine language. And I just, the moment I read that term machine language, <laughs> it just, it was like magical. Um, so I researched that and that's, of course, that's assembly language. And that's, that's um, you know, talking directly to the microprocessor and, um, basic interpreter will slow things down. It makes it easy to program, but it, it executes very slowly. 
And if you could manage to make the little man walk in machine language, then um, it, it'll walk faster or the animation will look better. So I learned how to do that. And in the, the uh, Sinclair ZX81, I had a, a, a Z80 processor, um, which is an 8-bit processor. And uh, they're, they're very simple commands. And um, I was able to get the little guy to run across the screen. Yeah, run instead of just walk. He ran across the screen. And then I was totally hooked. And and um, I, I, it just popped into my head right now. What is the most addictive thing about programming is you get into this loop where you try a little thing and then you run it and see how it looks. And then you try something else and you could just keep trying things over and over again. And it uh, becomes you know, very addictive. So it's like, oh, how, what if I make them run faster? Or what if I, at, instead of just running horizontally across the screen, how about he goes up a scan line every other frame of animation? And then now it looks like he's running up a hill. And so, oh, wait, what, can I rotate him while he's running? And, or can I make two men? And can I, can I figure out when the two men hit each other that the, the you know one guy falls over or explodes. Yeah, it's actually exploding. That's what I had in mind. So this whole collision detection concept came mm -hmm. came in, and it's like you know one thing just leads to another, leads to another, and it's just you're on. Then you're on the the, the treadmill of programming, and it's it's glorious. So um, this was a little black and white uh a computer and it was slow and crappy it was great for 200 bucks and it was also great <laughs> that it was my it was my first computer but then um uh, my dad uh gave me the money to buy an atari 800 which was the atari computer at the time and it had a 6502 microprocessor in it and i was like oh man and it's color and there's all kinds of like sprites and smooth scrolling play fields and this crazy stuff. So I got that and um, my friend and I made our first video game. It was called Pyramid Run. Um, <laughs> he did most of he did like 99.9999% of the, the work. Um, but it was all in 6502 and I learned everything I needed um, it, on that project. And, you know, we were just kids, so um, we didn't know what to do with it. And, you know, we wanted to sell it and we wanted to get rich. So we found, we found the publisher that was close to where I lived. I lived in uh, New York and there was this publisher called MMG Microsoftware Publishing mm -hmm. in New Jersey. So uh, we drove there with a disc and we showed um, the guys who own that company, um, the, the game, and mm -hmm. they bought it. And, um, it, you know, then, you know, in a few months, we were seeing ads for the game. And, uh, it, you know, it was, it was the best thing <laughs> in the world. It was I've really the best thing in the world. Did you have people ever bring the game up, like, organically? Like, and you're like, oh, I was the one that made that, or no? Like, I'm, no, I'm I mean, it's so, it's so obscure. <laughs> but the interesting thing about it was, I had a friend at the time also who also had an Atari um, computer, and he had this weird disk drive that enabled him to copy, um, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, copy protected games. Like you, you mm. stick the copy protected game in and then and a blank um, five and a quarter inch disc, and then it would spit out a perfect copy and it would work. So he was, I met him. Now I never bought any of those games, but <laughs> I, I did want to see what he had because he, you know, he had every, every game. And I remember his name was Frank Tetro. And uh, he was a good guy, you know, we were friends and we even started to do little projects together or whatever. And then we lost touch and, you know, wow, he's, he's a pirate anyway. And then <laughs> just a few years ago, I was looking at like some YouTube thing and the, and it had my game and on the, in the high score slot on the bottom of the UI where we always keep your, your high score, it said Frank Tetro. It's like, oh hmm. man. So the pirate <laughs> got my game, and I, I I remember him forever. And God knows how many illegal copies of my game he sold. Just if you ever see Pyramid Run on the Atari 800 on YouTube or something, look on the bottom of the screen, and it's a high chance that's going to be this dude, Frank. That's hilarious. I should I should find him on LinkedIn one day and remind him <laughs> about the whole thing. And threaten to sue him for pirating my game back in 1982 or something like that. All right. So that, that's what got me into the, the whole thing of um, it, it just, it started my career because that now I could program the mysterious machine language. And um, I got a job with uh, a company in New York called Sunburst Communications. And they made, um, educational software or like educational games, which, which I enjoyed a lot working on those games. And it was on a, uh, Apple II, which also mm -hmm. luckily had a 6502, uh, microprocessor, just like the Atari. So I kind of hit the ground running and I did that for a long time until, uh, 1989. Um, the Sunburst opened up a, like a subsidiary in uh -huh. Scotts Valley, uh, which is south of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like real. It's 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 actually Santa Cruz, and um, they asked me if I wanted to move to California with them, and I did because in New York at the time there weren't a lot of like computer jobs, especially mm -hmm. there were no video game or game developers or game publishers in New York at all. Like I said, I had to go to New Jersey to sell our game. And then it, and the only programming job I could find was making educational games. So it was yeah. like halfway where I wanted to go. But I knew if I, if I make it out to California, um, then I, you know, my chances of, of working on some video games would, would go up. Was that already a place to go if you wanted to work in school, like a technology field at that time? Well, well, we moved out here from New York to make more educational software, um, mm -hmm. actually laser disc software. But at the time, that was like many years after I made my first game and I kind of evolved into more of a, um, a management and I had programmers I managed programmers, um, which really I was like a producer. And when I got out here, um, I immediately uh, heard about uh, a job at Sega of America. <laughs> and I remember it really clearly because it, I was here 
only three days in California when I heard about that job. And then uh, the Loma Prieta earthquake hit. And I was like really close to the epicenter. And I was like, rock my world. And I was like, welcome to California. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, and I, st I stayed though. It, it was actually the one of the coolest experiences of my life because I watched a... Uh, a parking lot become liquid just oh waves going through it and it, it just the motion um sort of bouncing up and down and not being able to get off the ground um because i was sitting on a concrete slab when the earthquake hit anyway it wasn't until i found out people died that i was psyched up to that point and then i was oh, sad wow. but um but but then soon after the the calamity ended, um, I got in touch with a headhunter who was representing Sega of America, and he was like, would you be interested in interviewing on uh, on this job? And I was like, yes. <laughs> because the, the one thing I noticed when I was making educational games was there was this unspoken bias against cool um, animation, or if, if the game looked too good or was too fun, there was a suspicion that its pedagogy wasn't as strong as its gameplay. So because the educational software is being sold directly to schools, not, not, mm. not consumers, um, there was, they, they didn't want to make the, the, the game part of the educational games too cool. And that it was always frustrating to like actually, you know, go out of your way to make it kind of lame. So I fantasized about, you know, being on a project where, the, the, you know, where everybody wants it to be as cool as it could be and make the animation look as smooth as possible, make the game play as fun as possible. Like the what you were having to do at the educational game company was very yeah, it was almost it was sinful. It was it's <laughs> like you, you can't. You, this is for kids ultimately. And you can't like go out of your way to make the game not as fun as it should be. It should be as fun as it possibly could be. So that's why it was, it was exciting for me to go to, you know, entertainment type games because the sensibilities were more aligned with what I wanted to do. And also, um, you know, when you make an educational game, the budget is like, you know, whatever it takes to pay a programmer for three months. That's the right. budget of it. You know, with, with a, a, a Sega, you know, Genesis cartridge, you know, the, the budgets could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And, and of course that hardware was, um, you know, for me, it was like, Oh my God, look, at, look at that 16 bit glory. It's just wonderful. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. So um, I went, and interviewed for that. And I was tag teamed by all the, you know, sort of older, been in the game industry guys. Um, and I was like, I was pretty young. And I was I was way too enthusiastic. Um, <laughs> and I should have toned it back a little bit. And I was even in that interview that first day, I was pitching them, Echo the Dolphin. I was like, I this idea, do this um, this dolphin game, and so um, you already had the game conceptualized at this oh, yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, because when I was working with Sunburst, I I 
had the pleasure of um, producing the games of The Voyage of the Mimi, which was a PBS uh, multimedia show. It was actually Ben Affleck's first acting job. And it was about this little boy, Ben Affleck, who um, spent the summer with his grandfather, who was a captain of like a schooner boat. And there was a, a bunch of research scientists on the boat that summer to study sperm whales. So the games that 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 I was involved with, I was going to say the games that I made, but I didn't make them. I was just involved with them. Um, were all about you know whales, whale research, um, temperature, water, and uh, the 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 water cycle, like all the the, the scientific. Um, concepts that the show brought up there was like a 13 part um tv show that was on pbs and then the games um supported the the scientific and mathematical concepts from the show so it was pretty cool so that made me pay attention to um you know whales and uh sea life and uh, you know i just started to get more and more interested in it and you know i always knew that whales were mammals and they had to breathe air and they hold their breath when they went under the sea and that kind of thing but that i i didn't know that the way they communicate and the way they use echolocation to like hunt and to communicate and then that they can actually see with sound just like a you know a sonogram um they could eat, they emit sound and then they listen to the reflection and their brains will take that reflection sound and compose a visual image based on that sound. So like if I were to describe to you right now what my brother looked like, um, you'd have a very vague image in your mind. You know, he's, he's five foot five, he's a little overweight, he's got dark hair and he's got a very nice beard. And you'd have an image. And but if I was a sea mammal, if I was a dolphin, I would just go, Bleh! and then you'd see my <laughs> so that so they could not only see with sound, but they could rebroadcast it. So they're like swimming video cameras communicating in images. Mm-hmm. And that that concept kind of rocked my world. And then at the same time, I was like, you know, I really wanted to make a a beautiful game and a smooth scrolling <laughs> game. So it was like, you know, you got to be a dolphin. You got to jump out of the water and do flips. And um, and it, yeah, so then I, I had it. And it was, I actually made it work on, uh, on a Mac, on the <laughs> very first Mac. And it was playable with a keyboard with a little black and white dolphin. And uh, yeah, and I pitched it to Sega the, the first day. <laughs> and, and it was that was uh and that was a long time ago that was that was yeah 1989 or 1990 when when they hired me wow between starting at sega did they have you what did they hire you to do and did you start on any projects immediately or did they kind of yeah well they they had so they they just had started shipping the Sega Genesis in America at the time. And um, so they had a long list of titles that they wanted to, to create because uh, Sega of Japan, you know, was cranking out great games, but uh, Sega of America needed to make some games like with sort of, you know, more Western sensibilities, I guess. So there was like all kinds of uh, projects that were already um, underway 
that were like, you know, licenses from EA or, um, you know, different, different games that were going to be ported to the, to the Genesis because they, you know, they need to build a library to, you know, make it, you know, to beat Nintendo, they have to, <laughs> they have to build, you know, a huge library of, uh-huh. of the best games they can. So they hired me as a project manager, um, which is, which is the same as a, a game producer these days. And, um, you know, here's the project, here's the development agreement, here's the, you know, the developer that we identified or go find a developer, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I would manage these projects. So the first project I got was this game called Abrams Battle Tank. <laughs> and it was from Electronic Arts. And I was like, I don't want to do a game on a tank. But then, of course, it was awesome, and it you know had it was like the first three D game ever, and it, and and there was you know it was a huge challenge to get it to run on on the Genesis as three D, mm-hmm. and uh, pulled it off. It was like blindingly fast at like six frames per second, and um, and it, and that was the it was not only the first game that I got to publish um, with Sega. It's also the first uh, Sega of America published. Um, game so then from so that was successful and then um then uh, um this is an interesting thing that the the, this movie dick tracy was Mm -hmm. coming or i don't know and um it was a big deal it was going to be a big movie and i think even madonna was in it Uh, i can't remember who starred as dick tracy uh but anyway all, all the other project managers wanted to produce that game but there was another game that nobody wanted to produce and it was spider-man i'm like (laughs) i want to do spider-man so um i got it and um and and produced that and that was the first originally designed um sega of america game and uh, spider-man versus kingpin that was a lot of fun and I, you know, I loved Spider-Man. And the other thing is both Spider-Man and I were born in New York the same year. So I felt like we're, you know, <laughs> we're like brothers. And I grew up with comic books, of course, and uh, got to produce the game. That was great. And that led to like X-Men and then X-Men 2 and then Shikan the Forever Man and then where, Echo the Dolphin. And- where was working with licensed products like do you have any experience with what that's like now versus then? Like how that experience cha- has changed for developers? By yeah, I think it was um, back. It was way easier because, you know, there was these huge industries, mm-hmm. these entertainment industries. The first one, you know, the biggest one was movies and then there was TV and then there was toys and then you go all the way down to comic books and then way, way down, way below comic books was video games. Like <laughs> there was no significant market for it. It was just getting started. And I remember even thinking, like, oh man, one day, you know, the we're gonna be as big as the comic book industry. Mm-hmm. And it's like so it was, you know, the licensing people were just, you know, you know, a kid my age who knew about the X-Men and, you know, he'd make sure that we didn't break any rules. But of course I I knew, I knew the X-Men and we followed, uh, uh, we followed it religiously. So we never really got much push, pushback and it was pretty easy. Um, Today, like working with uh, licensors, they're a lot more sophisticated and they realize that, um, 
you know, there is always this this feeling that the game makers just want to take the license and slap it on and, and just use the license as just a form of marketing um, to sell a crappy game um, more than it deserves to be sold. And so there, there have to be people that know the like the content. I mean, imagine if if you were working for Marvel Comics and someone's going to make like a Thor game, you you are obligated to read thirty years of Thor and know everything he's been through and why Stan Lee cut his hair and all that stuff because you can't you can't really um, you know be sure that the, the game developers are going to treat the, the IP or the, the mythology with the respect that it deserves. So I know it's, I know it's harder now, but it's, it's better in a way because um, there's so much money to be made if you do it right compared to doing it cheap and lousy. And um, everybody wants, you know, the games to be great and be respectful of the, the mythology. So they, they uh, push hard on it. So it makes it a little more difficult, I guess. Absolutely. And with Chacon, you actually got to work with like Mark Miller. Like, yeah. Mark, I met Mark on that. Wait, did I know? I work with Mark on a couple of games. I think he actually did some music in the Abrams Battle Tank. Mm. And then, um, oh, no, no. He was, uh, he was on Spider Man. He did the music for Spider Man. That's and then, and then, uh, yeah. And then when when I then when we started Chicago the Forever Man, I got in touch with him, and uh, he actually wrote the game design document, the mm -hmm. first game design document, which was like an inch thick. <laughs> like back then, it was like how thick the game design document is was an important thing. Not many people read it, but you could you could hold it up and thumb through it and uh, see how thick it is. It was, um, yeah. So I work with Mark on that, and I also work with his brother John Miller on that project, and a bunch of other people from Boston, like friends of of Mark's. And um, the one significant thing about I don't know why you brought him up, but he's like such a huge important part of my life and everybody's life who who comes from the Sega days, because Mark and John. Um, made this uh, sound driver called Gems, and it 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 allowed musicians to use like normal sequencers, and then just quickly download the MIDI into a card that um, that John designed. Um, and then you know you could you could preview your music really quickly. Um, the Genesis had, Genesis had a Z80 microprocessor and an mm -hmm. FM chip, and it was a pain in the ass to actually make music and. And you could sound one way on your on your synthesizer and sequencer, and it'll sound completely different on the TV going through the Genesis. So it's good to be able to actually use the Genesis as your com your composition instrument, and they enable that. And um, wow. I don't know how many Genesis games have the Gems driver in it, but I, I, I'm sure it's a ton. I'm sure it's more than half. Going from working with licensed. Um, mm -hmm properties and then going was it because you did chicken and some other licensed properties and then went to echo so you went from working with other people's idea to finally getting to develop an idea that you clearly had been 
yeah. <laughs> conceptualizing for a long time at this point. Because this is a couple yeah. of years later that you got the opportunity to work on Echo, right? Yeah, well, I, I think I got a, a good mix of licensed properties, games, mm -hmm. and um, original games. Um, and so, so what you're asking is like, well, what's the difference between the mm -hmm. license versus? So the, a lot of times, if it's a good license, like, I mean, what better video game characters can there be than Marvel superheroes? Right. So it's like, okay, we're going to do Spider-Man. What should you do? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's very clear. And then you can look at the source material and then just come up with so many ideas because, it's all thought out and it's all already cool. It's like pre-baked cool. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, things like, oh, Peter Parker is, a, is a, a photographer. And, but yet at night he has to manufacture his own webbing. So it, what, what you have to do in the game is take pictures and then sell the pictures so you can get money to make webbing. And, mm -hmm. and that idea, you know, comes from the mythology, but it's a totally original idea from you know you know me and the designers that worked on that game so it's still very satisfying to work with other other people's ideas and in fact it this it makes it a lot a lot easier mm -hmm. um sometimes you know the completely original ideas are really difficult like echo was hard <laughs> because you know no pockets no guns <laughs> no inventory um what? He's got to hold his breath while he swims, and then like you got to surface. And Are there really any games that that utilized like water mechanics at the time? At the time, no, no. There was. Um, I remember it, it could have been years later, but I remember there was a James Pond, mm -hmm. which was a a fish who was like James Bond. <laughs> um. But you know, I think if it was underwater, it was it was represented like sort of a, in a campy or cartoony way. Mm -hmm. And you know, my my vision was is to be as seriously and hauntingly beautiful as possible. And I, I remember even pitching this this notion that like the the ocean is like unbelievably beautiful. But at the same time, it's like incredibly dangerous and scary. I mean, if you swim down to a beautiful coral reef, you say, oh, look at all the fish. You're still terrified because some of those fish will, could eat you. Mm -hmm. So it's like the dichotomy between beauty and sort of brutality or, or you know, how, how scary the, the ocean is. I mean, after, you know, I grew up when Jaws was in the movie theater. And when I saw that movie, it's like even even pools are, are scary after mm -hmm. that movie. So um, I love the, the sort of the, that juxtaposition between beauty and, and, and sheer terror. Anyway, um, so where was I going? Yeah, so sometimes it's hard to do an original idea, but then, and then, and then what I noticed was, like I have an idea, like I had this idea in, you know, 1985 to do this game on Dolphins. I was going to do it on, on an Atari 800. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to do it on an Apple II. No, 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 I'm going to do it on a, a Macintosh. And then, you know, time is going by. Then all of a sudden, the Genesis. So my point is a lot of times, almost every time, there's the idea and then 
a decade later the opportunity to actually act on the idea. So if you're thinking about it all that time, by the time you roll up your sleeves and start to put together a team and try to figure out a way to make it work, there's so much thought has gone into it that, you know, it's sort of baked enough as if it were an existing property like Spider-Man or the Mm X-Men. So I'm I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask about um, there's, there's things that people still talk about today about the series, um, about the first game, like the music people. I, I, I was just pulling people that I know to about Echo, but um, a lot of people are, uh-huh. tell me that like the music is something that sticks with them now. Like in reading about the development of the game, it seems that you, the music was really important for you as a mechanic in the game. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was about the, the mood um to to give it atmosphere and um like i said you know i I never wanted it to be campy or cartoony uh or silly or you know foot tapping (laughs) blue hedgehoggy i I wanted it to really like to take itself seriously um and and then you know really emphasize that Mm -hmm. that beauty danger thing that i mentioned before um so i you know in thinking about it um i'm not a musician um, so I, I, I didn't make any music, so I would choose music that I loved, um, just to sort of frame, um, the visuals with, uh, you, you just sort of get the, the whole vibe and Pink Floyd was what I wanted more than anything, specifically shine on you crazy diamond, um, which is just such, such a gorgeous chunk of music. And when I was able to, when I got to the point where I had to talk to musicians to actually do the FM programming for the music for the game, um, that that's what I would play. So I'd show the little demo of the dolphin swimming around and uh, play Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And, uh, and everybody could see, it wasn't just like, you know, make it like this. It was sort of like, go for this kind of feeling, which is, you know, a result of the, the audio and the visuals at the same time. And um, so one of the first guys that I did this to was Spencer Nielsen. And I I remember as he's looking at the screen and I hit play (laughs) on my my cassette recorder and play my old uh, uh, Shine On Your Crazy Diamond tape. Uh, I'm sorry, wish you were here. Sorry, Raj. Um, And, uh, you know, I saw him nodding slowly. Yes, yes, yes. So I was happy that he, he got it immediately. And, and it was only a day later, he said, Ed, listen to this. And then he played something like that. And it, it just defined the music for echo from that point on that one tune. And what's unfortunate is I just re- I asked him about this recently. I'm like, do you, can, do you have that file, that original tune? Cause that, that tune itself oh never made it into the game. It just was the sort of the, the, you know, the first original echo tune and then everything sort of mm-hmm. like branched off from there. So the original tune is gone. Um, but that's, that's how it, that's how it all started. And then once you, once you drive a stake in the ground, say, well, this is, this is sort of the, the oral quality of, of, of the experience. Um, you know, once you define that, then all the music kind of just mm-hmm. obeys that. Um, very, very few tunes were created that I, I didn't allow into the game. Uh, almost every single tune. 
that was uh, done. And there was a bunch of musicians. There were, there were, there were uh, uh, I don't know, maybe four or five musicians that did most of the music in the first two games. And then, uh, you know, a few other people that did one or two pieces. And all of, all of it pretty much made it in. And then, um, speaking of the music, when Sega CD came, then we were able to do Red Book audio, which is, you know, CD audio you know, way higher quality. And, you know, Spencer um, was excited about that because he's, you know, he's one of those real musicians that, that, that could deal with multiple other musicians and, and, and make great music uh, with, with uh, uh, like an orchestra. So um, he did all the music for Sega CD, which is like, a, it, it's a spiritually the same as the, the the EEPROM versions or the cartridge versions of the music, but uh, is all different and it's done custom for uh, for the Sega CD, which was pretty awesome too. And uh, you were talking about kind of not wanting to get lumped in, not wanting Echo to get lumped in with uh, the Blue Hedgehog. You know, um, did you face any struggles? with the games like you, you story being what it was like you know like the game looking on the surface like a, a serene dolphin later and then it kind of going full throttle yeah right it's so funny that you said it. like really even today like people <laughs> like point to echo as the non-violent game <laughs> and it's like Oh my God, it's more violent than any game. It's like everything is trying to eat you and like the sharks are biting at you and, and pterodactyls are grabbing you. And I mean, it's, it's, it's terribly violent and you look at it and you assume that it's, it's like you said, a serene, um, peaceful, nonviolent uh, experience, but, but it's not. And so, yes, and I know what you're asking me and, and it was a real pain because um, people would want ideas such as, you know, how about, um, you know, oil slicks or how about um, scuba divers with uh, spear guns and you have to avoid them or you get hit with a spear gun. And um, everybody wanted to mm -hmm. put humans into the game. Um, like, and, and it was like, no, 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 there can't be any oil slicks there can't be any fishing boats there can't be any scuba divers there can't be any of that um it, because the whole idea and and this was like Im really important that the whole story was completely a hundred percent from the point of view of the dolphin not mm -hmm. you know it wasn't like you know a boy who befriends a dolphin and you know the story is really about the boy and the dolphin is just a prop it it was more about like look this is a sentient living being and they have a culture and and their own their own jokes and their own way of communicating their own opinion about the world and i you know i love the idea that it was none of our business i mean uh, the the gamers that were playing that game were just were just spying on the dolphins like they didn't know anything in, in fact it's the game story takes place way after we're like gone humanity is gone and um, so that, yeah, there was a, a resistance mm -hmm. of sort of like design tropes that were trying to get into the game. But um, how I got lucky 
was basically like what you were saying is that when you look at the game, you think one thing. Um, so there was a sort of um, a veil of privacy that I was in that nobody <laughs> knew. And um, the other thing too is everybody at Sega at the time was everybody was really busy, so not a whole lot of people had time um, to impose any oversight. So I basically got away with murder and just did whatever I want, and there were <laughs> no one really looked at it. And so like you do what you, well, you go back about in dolphins. time, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is pretty weird, but but I let it get as weird as it really wanted to be. And you know, it's like such a Star Trek fan and sci-fi, and then you know the the obsession with sea mammals um, and the, the way they communicate, and like I said, like they they have their own culture and that kind of thing. Uh, what was what was reception of the game like? So, the first one. It was it was pretty good. Um, I don't really, I wasn't privy to like sales or, you know, that too much of that kind of stuff. I just remembered people writing about it and, um, and it seemed like there was a buzz about it. And then, um, you know, I got a, I got a box of the cartridges that I got to take home and I, I gave the game to like the comic book <laughs> store guy and. He was like, "This, my wife loves this. this. is the best game she ever played." And I was like, "Oh man, that's awesome!" And uh, so, that, so that's how I was able to sort of measure, you know, how mm -hmm. how it how it came out. Um, but also, I got I got serious pushback on like how hard it was. It's like, oh, that's really <laughs> were you expecting that? No, I kind of made it. I kind of made it a little hard on purpose. Um, <laughs> but I should say that it's really, really easy to make a game that's too hard. Um, and back then, like you make the game and then you wire it to Japan, and then they manufacture the EEPROMs and they put it on a boat send it across the ocean and it goes and toys are us it's like oh we made a mistake it's very expensive to change the code yeah. when it's like so you you know you're stuck with it with what you got and i and i at the time this you know blockbuster or some you know hollywood video or something like that it started renting um video game cartridges and i was like you know, I didn't want the kids to rent it for the weekend, beat it, and then, you know, bring it back and not buy it. And, you know, they pay a buck and uh, nobody nobody buys it. So I wanted to make it long. And one way to make the game long is to make it challenging. So I made it a little too challenging. But I bet you nobody knows this, but the, um, the very first version of Echo was revved. So a second version came out that was easier, which is still too hard. Everybody complains about it, but it was, <laughs> there, there, there are, I don't know, 50,000 Sega cartridges, you know, Genesis cartridges that have a way, way too hard Echo the Dolphin. Huh. You're going to have people just claiming that that's what they have, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, I, must, I just have one of the hard cartridges. Or I could just say that, oh, you must have the hard one. <laughs> oh, man. You're going to start a black market for these extra hard Echo the Dolphin cartridge games. I, I should try to figure out like how to tell the difference <laughs> between the two. Cause I can't, I can't remember how if there's a way. Um, and, and did the same team that worked with you on the first game, did they work with you on the subsequent titles? Yeah. As well? Yeah. And in fact, the, 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 all those guys I still work with like, really? Yeah. So, um, 
Yeah, and they're the best. They're the best on every level, like as people, as um, as men, as uh, as designers, and and as programmers and artists. Um, I, I, I fell in love with them, and every single game I could I could work on with them, I do. And we, Space War Arena is um, from a lot of the guys on the Echo team. Um, wow. And you know we, we'll continue to work together because it, it, Echo was such a success, an emotional success um, that we just stuck together from that point on. Wow. Um, so, what was the journey like for you guys then, from from that point, from the you know nineteen ninety two to twenty nineteen? So, you guys have been working on games together for yeah thirty. 30 years, yeah. We're not going to be uh, pivoting on our careers at this point. Uh, we're kind of <laughs> committed. So, yeah, we just, it, it was just, um, like, always try to make original creative games. Like, always mm -hmm. try to make Echo-like games that are that are surprising and, and in, in strange ways or weird. Well, yeah, that's, I, I always want to make weird games. Um, <laughs> so wherever I could either convince a publisher or an investor or some way to get it funded, um, we'd make it. So like Tiny Tank was a PlayStation one game that we all made together. And, um, and that was an original. And then uh, three dirty doors. That was a, a Saturn game, same team. And that was an original, um, and then we just just kept making them. And there's just a lot of games. A lot of it, I think I've forgotten more games because um, <laughs> you know I'm old and I've been doing it since the beginning of almost the very beginning of the the industry. And you know, every year or every other year, at least um, one game comes out. And, so and, and and so tell me about your newest game um and, and what was it like working i mean like i can't imagine the difference in technological capabilities of developing for the switch <clears throat> um and developing for the sega genesis yeah it's really funny that um i always have to force myself not to uh you know sort of put things through the lens of old limitations <laughs> um, because you know, back when it was only eight-bit processors and uh, TV sets, it was um, you know, it, like Echo the Dolphin was half a megabyte. The whole cartridge, the whole game. <laughs> I mean, if if you download a song from iTunes, that that song is like ten times the size of the Echo the Dolphin cartridge. So, you know, the limitations back then were so severe. Like how many sprites you could have on the screen at the same time. And, <laughs> frame rates um and and input speeds and so many things um and then like today there's limitations but there are a completely different sort of limitations like like you know space isn't a limitation like number mm -hmm. of pixels moving on the screen simultaneously isn't real that that much of a, a limitation so it, what what's the limitation now? Well, it, it's the same limitations, but you can add two or three zeros to the number <laughs> of of you know how, how many pixels can you move? Like you know, to have wow. like when Doom first came out and, and had this sort of immersive three D running down the hallway kind of vibe, it was mind blowing. 
just absolutely mind blowing <laughs> because to, to yeah. move that many pixels, you know, every frame uh, was amazing. So now, now the limitations are, you know, time and money and communication and, you know, dealing with a lot of people. And, and the other, the other huge limitation on games is that they are, they're very expensive and it puts mm -hmm. the entire industry in a position to mitigate risk. And that's why you get a lot of me too kind of games because, you know, any game that's a huge success, you got to make a game like that to help ensure your success so you don't lose a huge amount of money. So it, right. that's unfortunately the limitations are, are things like that. But um, wow. we, we're still making games and right. I, I love this, this one in particular. I really, really love it's like so fun and so satisfying. And <laughs> it feels old to me, feel because I love when i was a kid as a player you know any game with like little spaceships um like the original space war which was the very first video game had two little spaceships and mm -hmm. fender or um and any of those games i was really into it so now here i am you know you know in my 50s looking at a game that i just made and it has little ships and it's the best <laughs> what and what kind of game is that uh, it's a real-time strategy game, uh, player versus player. So we, it's really designed uh, where its main mode of play is two people sitting on the couch, looking at the same screen, fighting each other, um, which is like the original Space War. Which was you, you get a ship, I get a ship, and then we go at it until there's only one left. So this is similar. Um, it's more of a like a real time strategy game where you have you know thirty different kinds of ships that you unlock and level up and um, you could you you launch them at your opponent in different combinations. It's like a, it's just an infinite um, uh, landscape of strategy that that we discovered. It wasn't even you know the game isn't really designed. We found this game. And just as soon as it, we, as soon as we felt the fun, I was like, okay, let's start tuning it and balancing it so it becomes more and more fun. And and you know, it's weirdly, it's probably the most generic game I've ever made, generic like original, because it's just spaceships and space fighting each other. You know, very very simple, but um, um, you know, beautifully complex and and really really high fun factor. I'm very excited about it. And so the hardware with the switch, with the joy cons and, you know, like it being a, it's a very, it's a very unique system um, as a lot of the hardware that's been coming out, especially by Nintendo has been for the last couple of years. Yeah. Like what, what's it like getting to, to work with something that's a lot more adaptive um, in, in, the kind of technologies it's using. Yeah, well, you got you got to think differently. Like, the, the one thing about me and 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 my team is that we've worked on so many different, you know, so through so many epochs of of video game technology, like you know, from eight bit, sixteen bit to thirty two bit to you know, modern stuff, touch screens, and so we're used to uh, coming up to speed quickly on on a new on new hardware and new ideas of hardware but you know it's funny for me it's it's a big deal because i never uh, made a game for a nintendo platform i was you know either you know, sega pcs mac 
uh, phones, but never Nintendo because I was, I'm from the Sega camp and you know, Nintendo was the enemy. So it's it's weird for me to to be on Nintendo, but man, I I just love the Switch. I love it so much because that that whole docking thing works so great. And especially with this game, it just it feels like such a perfect platform for for our game. And um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of there's a couple of co complicated things like what happens if somebody wants to use the Joy Cons like, uh, but you put it together on one of those holders so that it's like an Xbox controller. That's a different kind of mode than just using one Joy Con as like a D pad oriented controller. Uh, like so, like there were a lot of little combinations of of things that we never thought of, and then Nintendo was real good at pointing out that we have to make sure that we comply to that. And we did. Um, so now, now we know it well, and I'm looking forward to doing more games on, on the Switch. And in the future, for you guys, I, I've seen a lot of talk about more for Echo. I know that there was um, a crowdfunding measure that that didn't really pan out a couple of years ago um but i've seen a lot of talk about something in the future well eventually there one way or another there will be uh, another echo the dolphin um but i i think i think it's fair to say my intent is to uh make another game and you know and i also want to reboot shikan the forever man and yeah. um and you know, especially on Switch, I would love to port Three Dirty Dwarves from which was a Saturn Saturn game onto the Switch. You know, and make it make it fun on, on that on that platform. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm excited about Switch, and I'm gonna I'm gonna double down on my efforts to not only get my old uh, games redone. Um, to, mm -hmm. uh, on that platform and others, um, also some new stuff. Awesome. And do you guys have um, a social media where anybody, everybody can follow you guys and the development of your games? Well, I just by, it just ended up this way that my Twitter is like the biggest thing I have. Like that's the one uh -huh. that reaches the most people. Um, and Facebook, I never really use Facebook. Um, I don't know. It's just too complicated or something. It's, it's just, I'm never comfortable on it. And then, but I realized recently, it's like everybody on my Twitter association that's like people I don't know, like you. I, I don't. I don't know anybody. And it's a lot easier. Well, that you know me. Yeah, I know. Uh, so yeah, so it's my Twitter is probably the biggest thing, and it's my just my name, Ed Anunziata. And I will have links. I'll have links to your Twitter um, on the show notes for the episode. Cool. Do you stream or anything on Twitch? No, or? I just figured out how to stream on that YouTube live thing. Uh -huh. um, so I'm planning on streaming some uh, Space War Arena, maybe a few okay. other things. So I'm just getting into it now. I, I probably won't do the green screen floating head. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say while uh, while I've got you here? No, thank you. It's over an hour. <laughs> Feel free to cut out as much as you want. 
Um, well, and I really all right. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll have show notes for today's episode up on cakebites.com. Don't forget to like and follow the show on social media so you can keep up with updates as well as on Twitch so you can get updates when I finally go live. Um, and yeah, I think that's everything. See y'all next time. Do you believe in magic? Yes, yes, that's all the singing I'll be doing for the rest of this commercial. I am the Well-Read Mage, a metaphorical magician with a fancy hat. I host a podcast called MageCast, an audio extension of thewellreadmage.com, home to over three dozen games writers from around the world. MageCast focuses each episode on a single game and aims to bring out the deepest, most analytical discussion possible without sounding pretentious. At times combative, at times thoughtful, at times hilarious, I dare you to find a more magical podcast led by a red mage. Hey, we're few and far between these days. And now, if you'll excuse me, I can hear the crystals calling. Don't forget, you can find MageCast on Buzzsprout as part of the Little Fella Media Network.